Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Labeling something a crime of the century is inherently subjective. I mean, if I only chose cases that everyone agreed deserved the moniker, I'd cover nothing or everything. There would be very few cases involving people of color because, let's face it, 19th and 20th century media had a preference when it came to its victims. Long story short, because it's a subjective label, there could be some argument over whether today's topic fits the title. But then I realized I get to choose, and this case arguably had one of the biggest effects on me because I was just a college intern at a smallish Iowa newspaper when it happened. It was huge news then, there's no question on that. And on a personal note, I don't know if I'd be a crime writer today if this case had never happened. And for whatever it's worth, I would be fine with that if it meant saving any life, but especially this one. Anyway, let's begin. When the news hit the Iowa City Bureau of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, it was clear from the start that most of the young reporters realized the gravity straight away. If you're just joining us, there is sad news tonight concerning comedian Phil Hartman. He was found dead in his Southern California home this morning, the victim of an apparent murder-suicide. Phil Hartman was a household name and had been for years. Most of them knew him as a former Saturday Night Live performer. He played too many characters on that show to even count, caveman lawyer. Your world frightens and confuses me. Bill Clinton. This administration has been more open about its affairs than any previous administration. Donald Trump, way before anyone could have remotely predicted his eventual presidency. Own it, own it, own it, own it, own it, own it, and own it. When Hartman had left SNL, he was arguably one of its biggest success stories ever produced there. Not so much because of his subsequent roles. I mean, sure, he'd go on to star in movies and more TV shows. But the big thing with Hartman was that he was just so well-liked. He called himself a utility player, which totally fits. He wasn't necessarily flashy. He was known as much for being a hard worker and team player as he was for his actual talent. And most of all, he was known for being a good guy, which is why the headlines in late May 1998 were so unbelievably jarring. So far, investigators haven't given a motive for the shooting of a man who made so many people laugh. For a lot of people my age, this case resonated so much not just because it was horrific and unexpected and the victim so well-liked, but also because it served as a wake-up call that even those who seem to have it all can lose everything because of a drug-induced, split-second decision. Philip Edward Hartman was born in Canada in 1948 as part of a crazy large family. When he was born, he was the fourth child in Italy that ultimately would reach eight. 
His dad, Rupert Hartman, with an extra N at the end his son would drop for show business, was born in 1914 in Ontario. His dad was of German descent. His mother had been born in Ireland. On Rupert's wedding certificate in 1938, he listed his occupation as salesman, while his new wife, the former Doris Marguerite Wardell, was a hairdresser. Fun fact on that document, Doris was listed as a 19-year-old spinster to Rupert's 23-year-old bachelor. Doris's dad, Frederick, had died by the time his daughter was married. Nearly 20 years into the marriage, the couple moved from Canada to U.S. by way of Detroit. Their fourth son, Phil, was about 10 years old then, and already a performer. This is former People magazine editor Larry Hackett speaking to ABC. He was one of eight kids, and he was the middle child. And like a lot of middle children, he's looking for a way to get attention. And he found that by being funny, doing voices, doing skits, he got that attention. It was a tight-knit family. Phil and his siblings even had a special language, as he told actress Rosie O'Donnell back when she had a talk show. I'm one of eight kids, and my brothers and sisters and I spoke a secret language. We spoke a language, what we called egg Latin when I was a child, in which you put the syllable egg in every syllable before the vowel and uh, after the preceding consonant. So uh, <laughs> well, it's, not, no. it's not as complex as it sounds, but Rosie would be regozegi. Phil would be fagil. The secret language wasn't mere gobbledygook. I don't know why. My brothers and sisters and I could speak this fluently, and we used to be able to say nasty things without our parents' understanding. But <laughs> the Hartmans are a playful, uh, playful They're crowd. a playful bunch. Hartman loved watching comedy and was innately drawn to old-school performers. Think Dick Van Dyke and Jackie Gleason. But that's not to say he initially envisioned himself on stage. In fact, growing up, he was torn about what path to take in life. For a while, he was a graphic designer. Well, Neil, I did uh, about 40 album covers from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. I did several for the group Poco, uh, including Poco 7 uh, and Legend, their biggest selling album. I did several for America. One of my favorite credits as a graphic designer, I did a logo for Crosby, Stills & Nash, which they use on their current CD retrospective. Uh, it's on the back of the CD with the tune titles superimposed over it. It's a CSN intertwined. And yeah, I used to be in the rock and roll world, and uh, I, I rather enjo enjoyed it, but the problem was I was spending eight hours a day at a drawing board or more and by myself, and I really was going buggy. Then, in 1975, everything changed when he went to a performance by the L.A.-based improv comedy troupe the Groundlings. This snippet features several voices describing what happened that fateful night. They'd ask for an audience member to come up, then I was backstage. And Phil all of a sudden leaps up and begins doing impressions. I never saw an audience member come up with that kind of excitement and energy. It was like a hurricane hit that stage, and I mean in a good way. Hartman later said of the experience, it was somewhat of an epiphany. I realized that I had to do this just to get some extroversion into the equation. The Groundlings were so impressed with Hartman that they invited him to join the troupe. That's where he met some of the performers who would help him pave his future. 
including a young goofball named Paul Rubens, in honor of whom my dad once owned a t-shirt with an image of a zipper and the words, Free Pee-Wee. You kids out there can do some sleuthing to figure out why. Hartman brought a certain flair when he performed, according to author Mike Thomas, who wrote the book, You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman. Phil always had this classic sensibility to him. He was almost like this dude who came up in the 30s and the 40s. He loved old Hollywood, that sort of rat-a-tat-tat sensibility. He loved the clothes. He loved the personalities. Despite his success with the Groundlings, he wasn't getting much outside work as a performer. And his personal life was even more pockmarked. After he graduated high school in 1966, he was hit and miss with a few college attempts before graduating from California State University with a graphic arts degree. In 1970, he briefly married a woman named Gretchen Lewis. Two years later, the couple divorced. It would be 10 years after that that Hartman would marry a real estate agent named Lisa Strain. By then, he had found his footing with improv, but Strain would later say that he could be tough to reach emotionally. This is Strain speaking. We've been married just a few weeks, and the relationship changed dramatically. I was the wife, and he no longer had to pay attention. He would tell me, you need to go have your own life. You're a black hole. No one could ever fill you. My sense of Phil was that he was really two people. He was the guy who wanted to draw and write and create and come up with ideas, the actor-entertainer, and then he was the recluse. Researching for this podcast, I don't find it unusual to encounter someone with a sort of dual personality dynamic going on. We see it all the time. But there's something a little different about this one. Herman seems like he was a good-hearted person, but for whatever reason, he couldn't let his guard down. And when that's demanded of you, which is, of course, kind of what happens in marriage, he went the opposite direction. As journalist Chris Connolly told ABC... Every woman who loved Phil learned the same thing about him. Which is that there was some part of Phil that is very hard to reach. Phil Hartman is not vulnerable. Phil Hartman will not let you into that place. Unfortunately, as much as Lisa loved the Phil she married, that Phil went away. She divorced Hartman in 1985. In the interim, Hartman was getting smaller scale but still meaningful jobs. A commercial here, a talking role there. It wasn't a ton, but enough to put him on some radars. Plus, his colleagues at the Groundlings were making some waves in the comedy world, too, and they spoke highly of him, which helped him land more jobs. For example, the aforementioned Paul Rubens became close with Phil, who helped hone Rubens' enduring Pee Wee Herman character and soon began helping co-write one of my all-time favorite movies, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Okay, are there any questions? Yes. Where's the basement? Excuse me? Aren't we going to see the basement? (laughs) There's no basement at the Alamo. (laughs) As Hartman's second marriage ended, his career seemed to just be starting, which sounds like it was a surprise, at least to him. He told a reporter that he did the comedy club scene as a way to meet women and have a social life. He said, quote, I had not serious aspirations as an actor because I didn't think it was possible to make a living at it, end quote. His friends did think he could make a living at it, though. Actor John Lovitz, whom Hartman had met in the Groundlings, joined Saturday Night Live in 1985, 
Show creator Lauren Michaels had heard praise about Hartman from lots of people, Lovitz included, so Hartman was asked to audition. You can find his audition reel on YouTube. My name is Philip Hartman, and I'd like to introduce you to some of my characters. Mr. Music, this is my favorite character. His name is Chick Hazard. He's a hard-boiled private investigator. Phil's facial features harden as he slips on a fedora and lights a cigarette. It was midnight when it happened. I was parked in front of Four Fingers of Bourbon at the Swanee Club on La Brea Avenue. Most ex-flyboys were making babies and buying refrigerators. But in the aftermath of my POW experience, I'd rekindled a relationship with two old pals, Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. Later, John Lovitz joined him on stage. Hartman had been great solo, but you can see a shift when he has someone to play off of. Listen, I've got some news for you. Your contract isn't being renewed. The studio's letting you go. Level with me. If, if, if you're unhappy with my work, tell me now. All right. Everyone says you're the worst actor in town. Don't leave me hanging by a thread. If you're unhappy with my performance, just give it to me straight. All right, you throw, do you hear me through? You'll never walk in this town again. Your life is finished. What's the word on the street? Why, <laughs> you... Around the same time, a friend set Hartman up on a blind date with a beautiful, aspiring model-slash-actress from Minnesota. Vicki Jo Amdahl had moved to California and, like Hartman, was trying to find her footing. In June 1985, she'd been named a semifinalist in an Ultimate Showgirl competition hosted in Vegas at Tropicana's Tiffany Theater. She didn't win the competition, but her date the next year with Funny Man Phil went very well forever changing the trajectories of both of their lives. It's weird just how connected we feel to some celebrities, isn't it? I mean, as I'm typing this episode, the Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial is in week 472, I think. And if you've ever needed proof that we regular folk feel way too connected to the people we see on TV and movie screens, man, there you go. But in fairness to us mere mortals, there are reasons that sense of connection happens. For example, it's thanks to Phil Hartman that I learned what masturbation is. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. My memory is that one night, I was watching SNL with my mom, and Hartman played a character who chronically masturbated, and he and his wife visited a therapist. The therapist told Hartman to look at himself, and his gaze immediately snapped down to his lap. This led to me asking my mother the obvious question, my mother providing a quick and matter-of-fact age-appropriate definition for me, and while I have no idea which episode that was in and thus no way to confirm my memory is actually accurate, it doesn't matter because the point is that this complete stranger on television innocently ended up intertwined with me learning a pretty lasting life lesson when I was just a child. The point of that tale is to say that sometimes the celebrities we watch play unexpectedly personal roles in our lives. They're where many of us learn about life and love and mortality. And those types of memories make these strangers feel like people we know, even if we don't. Vicki Omdahl envied that connection that so many people seem to have with her husband. Not the TMI-specific connection I mentioned, just the general connection. She'd grown up to very young parents. Her dad, Donald, was 19, and her mother, Constance, just 18, in Thief River Falls, a town in Pennington County, Minnesota. 
She was a decade younger than Phil, born in 1958 to his 1948. Thief River Falls was a small town then at about 7,000 residents, and it's not much bigger now. The population was shy of 9,000 as of the 2020 census. Vicky's brother, Greg Omdahl. Vicky, she was a really fun kid. She had a lot of friends. She was very artistic, creative. She'd do a lot of drawing, and she was very good on the piano. She had so much going for her. She was bright and funny and tall and gorgeous. Though when you look at her life in hindsight, it seems a hell of a lot of emphasis was put on those latter two attributes, especially an anecdote to illustrate. When you search for Vicki Omdahl in newspaper archives, the only mention is that 1985 Ultimate Showgirl article about her being a Los Angeles semifinalist. In that short story, all that's written about her is her given name, her height, 5'9", and her measurements, 34, 23, 34. She was tall and blonde and good-looking and probably a very big fish in a small pond. In her small town, she floored folks. Again and again, she heard she was somebody who could be a movie star. She looks like Grace Kelly. She was flawless. That's former SNL writer Donna Kaufman. So in my never-ending quest to find empathy, I imagine it was tough for Vicki Omdahl when she made her way to California and didn't make any significant waves. She had auditions. If you remember the goofy skit show Hee Haw, she reportedly tried to be one of those gorgeous farmer's daughters type girls who pops out scantily clad from the cornfield. The only real role she was landing, though, was as the girlfriend of a talented guy. She dated Rob Reiner, for example. And while Phil Hartman wasn't a household name when the two met, he was on his way to becoming one. Hartman fell for it fast, it seems though in that sort of guarded, arm-distance way that hadn't worked out well for his previous relationships. He was in no way jealous that he wasn't the first Hollywood man she had dated, according to SNL castmate Julia Sweeney. I remember thinking it was funny and so Hollywoody that Phil thought her pedigree with another super-famous guy was a plus. That was something that made her more valuable. He wanted that kind of person on his arm. I think for Phil, that was a sign of success. With the benefit of hindsight, of course, we can imagine that this might not bode well. Vicky, as a child, had been repeatedly praised for the superficial. It surely couldn't be a good thing to marry someone who maybe put a bit too much emphasis on the same. But at the same time, the relationship seemed almost serendipitous. Vicky, hoping to launch a new life with her new husband, created for herself a brand new start. She changed her surname in marriage and also her first name. Vicky Omdahl was no more. She was now Bryn Hartman. Life for Bryn in California was quite different than it had been for Vicky in Minnesota, her brother said. I know she did start using cocaine, and she would tell me about parties she would go to and how fun it was and that this cocaine was a great drug and she had a problem with cocaine. She did too much cocaine. She agreed to come to Fargo and she went through treatment. This predated Phil, to be clear. Phil knew she had had struggles, but if struggles precluded marriage, let's face it, we would all be single forever. 
On the whole, the two seemed to be a good fit, even if the early shine of the relationship began to dim. Bryn had their first baby, a son named Sean, in 1989, so two years into their marriage. Daughter Bergen followed in 1992. It must have been a whirlwind time for them. Phil's stint on SNL had started in 1986 and didn't end until 1994, when his kids were five and two, respectively. By then, he was without question beloved on the show. And in interviews, he emphasized his connection with his family. In my personal life, you know, I just, uh, I'm inspired by my own parents and, uh, and I'm inspired by my own children. You can see that inspiration in home videos that ABC included in its program marking 20 years since Hartman's death. Included were snippets of Bryn singing with the kids, Hartman joyfully playing Simon Says with them. My favorite moment is when young Sean is looking at his hand in that bemused, almost stoned way a kid looks when he's contemplating something for the first time. And over his shoulder is Hartman, imitating his son, looking just as bemused at his own fingers wiggling in front of his face. In this one shot, you clearly see not just how much Phil loved being a dad, but also how talented he was at imitations. It's kind of breathtaking. What makes me the happiest? Well, without question, it's being a father. Now, while it's clear that Phil and Bryn both love being parents, the whole married couple thing maybe wasn't as fulfilling. Bryn told people that Phil had promised they'd be a team, that he would help her with her career. But that didn't really happen. Bryn took acting classes and occasionally landed small roles in bit parts. And in fairness, she probably got the roles because she was Phil Hartman's wife. But I can imagine that wasn't really the life she had envisioned for herself while being endlessly praised growing up. But hell, Phil did try on some level to raise her profile. We know this because even though we only see her back, Bryn was part of his intro shot in the opening credits of SNL. He also brought her with him when he appeared on Howard Stern's radio show once. This is a snippet from that appearance, and just as an aside, note the emphasis put on Bryn's appearance here. Yeah. What did you do, swimsuits, lingerie? Did a lot of swimsuits. She was, a, a she was a runway model for swimsuits. If he screws up this marriage, then there's something wrong with him. Oh, did you ever meet the other two wives? No. Were they ever as beautiful? Gretchen on the phone never wanted to meet the second one. Were they as beautiful as Bryn? No. In hindsight, the comment about never wanting to meet the second one is kind of chilling because wife number two, Lisa Strain, later shared that after Phil and Bryn had their first child, she'd sent them a congratulatory note. Bryn replied with four pages of vitriol in which she threatened to rip Lisa's eyes out if she ever contacted them again. Lisa was so unnerved by the hostile response that she called Phil and told him about it. Yeah, he said, actually, there was an even harsher version, but it's partly my fault because Bryn asked if you were my soulmate, and I said yes, and that spiraled her out. Lisa never spoke to the Hartmans again. It's tricky trying to understand motivations for absolutely inexcusable actions. Nothing Phil Hartman did could ever justify what happened to him. At the same time, dismissing Vicky as a one-dimensional villain teaches us nothing. We all go through existential crises at various points in our life. We all question why we're here and what's the point. 
We all endure disappointments and frustrations. It's tough getting older, period. But imagine if your entire life, your value had been placed almost exclusively on your looks. Bryn had two kids she adored, but she had no career, and her husband was so busy with work that he literally made it the focus of his monologue when he returned to SNL as a host in 1996. I've been so busy lately doing movies, talk shows, commercials. Hey, I'm not greedy. I'm just trying to make ends meet like you folks. I'm just trying to put bread on the table, provide for my family. I mean, your kids grow up so fast. I remember the day my son was born. I was doing an Arby's commercial, <laughs> and I got a message on the set that everything went just fine. But the second that commercial wrapped, I jumped a plane, flew back east to do another commercial for Hager Slacks. <laughs> yeah, I missed an important occasion, but with the money I made from those two commercials, I was able to buy my infant son a pair of colored contact lenses. <laughs> now he's got beautiful green eyes, just like the old man. Because it's all about family. On any given day, Bryn might appear fine, but she wasn't, not at all. This is a message she left with a friend. It's Bryn Hartman, I got your message. Phil's just been working like crazy and he's real cranky. <laughs> the two were fighting more and more. After leaving SNL, Phil had starred in a few movies, and then, beginning in 1995, he played the character Bill McNeil on the sitcom News Radio. The timing of this episode of Crimes of the Centuries is, in fact, because News Radio co-starred Canadian comedian Dave Foley, whose iconic Kids in the Hall was just resurrected on Amazon, and watching that finally made me want to tackle the Hartman case. Life's weird sometimes. News radio was fun, and Hartman played the kind of guy he was arguably best at playing. Smart, but a bit smarmy, hungrier for power than he was really deserving of it. I will always be a fan of his work on The Simpsons, especially as washed-up actor and frequent educational video host Troy McClure. You may know me from such self-help videos as Smoke Yourself Thin and Get Confident, Stupid. News Radio also starred Stephen Root and Mara Tierney and comedian Andy Dick. The show wasn't a runaway success. Every year, it always seemed on the brink of cancellation, but it managed to keep trucking. And just as had been the case on SNL, Hartman was a team player that his castmates adored. Stephen Root once gave an interview to Entertainment Weekly in which he said, quote, Phil was never afraid to look like a fool or be made fun of because he had an underlying dignity. The funniest thing I ever saw was a fantasy episode where we were on the Titanic and Phil was very happy to put on a suit of French fries and sit there with Andy Dick dressed as a hot dog and watch people go by who were drowning. That is the mental picture that comes up when I think of Phil as the ultimate, I'll do this for a laugh and yet it will somehow be stately, end quote. According to Root, Phil was looking to change things up professionally soon. He had done comedy films like House Guest and Sergeant Bilko and Jingle All the Way. And while those were fun, he was looking to shift to something meatier, still in the realm of comedy, but maybe more refined, less slapstick. But things at home were progressively getting worse. Andy Dick, who had battled his own addiction issues, apparently gave Bryn cocaine around Christmas 1997, which maybe helped lure her out of a 10-year phase of sobriety. 
This was a problem on a lot of fronts, partly because Phil had vowed that if Bryn began using again, he would divorce her. Things came to a horrific head on May 28, 1998. Her last night alive, Bryn Hartman saw multiple people in various venues, and they would all later say the same thing. She had seemed fine. Granted, she had been struggling for months. Andy Dick would later say that while he considered himself close with Phil, his news radio co-star, he had no idea about Bryn's cocaine problem or her bouts at rehab or the ultimatum Phil had given her. In an interview with Tom Green, Dick didn't deny that he had given Bryn cocaine at a Christmas party, though he also said he wasn't sure that he did do it, just he didn't remember and so accepted that he probably did. But he denied that that meant he played any role in what she would do later. It would be like if I died tonight because I asked you for coke and you said, yeah, I happen to have some that my friend gave me. Yeah, here, go do it. And you didn't know I had a problem. Or you, you're, you're like, oh, he, he must always do it. He's it's like his vitamin C. It's, 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 it's vitamin to him. He needs it. And then you give it to him, but I die. Would you think you killed me? Uh, can I say no comment? I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I guess not. No. In fairness to Andy, he was suffering from addiction, and in between his supposed cocaine gift to Bryn and the Hartman's death nearly six months later, he'd gone to rehab. It isn't as though he'd walked around espousing the benefits of coke and handing out free baggies to anyone nearby. And it doesn't seem Phil held Andy responsible for his wife's relapse. In fact, Andy said that when he went to rehab in early 1998... I remember Phil calling. He was the only one. This will make me cry. And, and by the way, I love Phil. He was my surrogate father. He was my surrogate father because he was the only one that called me when I was in rehab. The only one. Yeah. yeah. The only one. But he also called me to say, hey, is it good? Because I think my wife needs to go. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it's real good. You should get her in here. Yeah. If she have a problem, yes, get her in. And then, of course, he, they were both dead months later. Here's what we know. Bryn, at least, seemed aware things were coming to a head. She was trying different avenues to get help. In mid-May, she had tried to reserve a space in a Malibu rehabilitation center for the first weekend in June, but had been told there weren't any beds available. Bryn also had her relationship on her mind, as evidenced by a romantic weekend retreat she had booked for Phil and her at a spa in Encino. On May 28th, Bryn had gone out with a friend, a woman named Christine Zander, and grabbed drinks at an Italian bistro. According to Zander, everything seemed fine. Xander, by the way, was a supervising producer on the sitcom Third Rock from the Sun, which is one of the few acting credits Bryn has on the internet movie database. Apparently, she played a Venusian in an episode. That night, Bryn reportedly nursed two Cosmopolitans over two hours, didn't seem upset, didn't talk about any problems, and made plans to see Xander again the next weekend. But later that night, Bryn got home, and apparently she and her husband started to argue. Phil didn't like to engage, though. Instead of fighting with Bryn, he withdrew and went to bed. It was apparently part of their cycle. And usually, it worked well enough. This night, it didn't. Instead of cooling off, Bryn got a 38 caliber handgun from a safe inside the house. Phil had gone to bed wearing a dark purple t-shirt and boxer shorts with cartoon dogs on them. 
Bryn fired three bullets into him at close range, then drove to a friend's house. That friend, Ron Douglas, didn't believe Bryn when she said she had killed Phil Hartman, but then Bryn showed Ron the gun. He must have still had doubts because he didn't call the police right away. In fact, he talked with Bryn for two or three hours at his house, trying to make sense of the story she was telling him. Eventually, he and Bryn took separate cars back to the Hartman's Encino home, where their children, Sean, then age nine, and Bergen, six, still slept. Once Ron saw the carnage, he called the police. Bryn holed up in the couple's primary bathroom. As police worked to remove the children from the home, they heard another gunshot. Bryn had emerged from the bathroom, laid in bed next to her husband, put a second handgun in her mouth, and pulled the trigger. At 6.20 this morning, police answered the report of a gunshot at the Hartman house. Officers were actually in the house, removing the Hartman children, when they heard another shot. Hartman was found dead in the bed. His wife was nearby, an apparent suicide. Later, Bryn's autopsy would show that she was still legally intoxicated. Her blood alcohol content was 0.12% and had traces of cocaine and antidepressants in her blood when she died. It's hard to articulate what an impact this had on the entertainment world. For starters, it isn't often that the star of a TV show dies while the show is still on the air. Because news radio was such an ensemble effort, they tried to continue the show by scripting the unexpected heart attack death of Phil's character, Bill McNeil. His longtime friend John Lovitz took on a new role in the series to fill the void, but things were never the same. It no doubt didn't help that there was tension between Lovitz and Andy Dick. The former held the latter at least partly responsible for what happened to Phil since Andy had provided Bryn Coke in a relapse. The first show after Phil's death was called Bill Moves On and was so emotional for cast members that they had to pause filming several times because of their unscripted breakdowns. The show lasted one more season and then ended after that. Many people who worked with Hartman still have trouble talking about his death even now, closing in on a quarter century after it happened. And it still bums me out and I didn't even know the guy. His kids were raised by their maternal aunt and appear to be doing well. It can't have been easy to grow up in the shadow of one of the highest profile and downright confusing crimes of the late 20th century. But Bergen, at least, is on social media and regularly mentions her father on Father's Day. She's also open about her own battles with substance abuse, which serves as stark reminder that one thing has changed since she lost her parents. It's more acceptable these days to acknowledge these troubles in public, and seeking help is more applauded than stigmatized. This case is likely part of the reason why. To research this story, I read and watched contemporary news coverage related to Phil Hartman in his heyday, as well as interviews with him and people who knew him in life. The ABC special, The Last Days of Phil Hartman, was especially useful for extra audio. I also referenced Mike Thomas's book, You May Remember Me From, and the spirit of ending this episode remembering the man for doing what he loved to do rather than mourning him. Here's one of my favorite Lionel Hutz moments in which he's talking with a fed-up judge on The Simpsons. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. Hmm. 
Mr. Hutz, do you know you're not wearing any pants? What? Ah! I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.